0: I want to talk to you about becoming a contagious Christian. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. There's even a book with that title that I ripped off for the purpose of this message tonight. And so, I want to start with Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8. A wonderful scripture that I think we don't really pay enough attention to. Listen to what Jesus said. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, drive out demons, freely you have received Give focus on that last phrase Jesus is instructing his disciples he said you have freely received stuff from me your, your life is better because of me you've been healed some of you had demons dealt with all of you are better because of meeting me your Savior Jesus he said in the same way that you have received freely of my love my grace my life-changing power now you need to Freely, liberally, without restriction, without hesitation. Give away what you have so easily and freely received. You know, there are different ways to share our faith. I find in a study of the Bible, I find that there's different styles. Actually, different styles and different means of sharing our faith. In just a moment... I'm going to share with you some statistics that are a bit alarming about the number of Christians that regularly share their faith and some statistics that will be encouraging about actually how many people would respond to the Lord if they just had an invitation. But before I do that, let's just review quickly. We don't have time to go to all these texts of scriptures, but I do just want to point them out for you for a moment. I've just picked four, and I think I actually made a list of seven, but I just chose four of the seven. These are what I would just call different styles of sharing your faith or different styles of being contagious. Number one is a confrontational style. Now, to be honest with you, not everybody's going to be the, con- the confronter. Not everybody is going to be a in-your-face confrontational style, and yet it's a biblical style if it's done appropriately and with anointing. It can be very effective. Peter chose this style in Acts chapter two. You remember the story on the heels of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter simply—they have all these strangers are in town, all these people from out of town—they're all there and they're and they're watching this miracle in front of their eyes. And Peter simply rises up. The Spirit of God now upon him, who was just only days ago, was literally so, so chicken that he denied Jesus, even knowing Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit has transformed him in this powerful preacher. He stands up and begins to tell them about Messiah. He tells them about this Christ, not only who he was, but how he can change their life. He said, "You see, you, do you see what's going on here? That can happen to you and he confronts them with the good news and a very well-laid-out presentation. But you know what? Not everybody's confrontational. Anybody here not confrontational? Come on. Some of you are so not confrontational, you will not even admit that you're not confrontational. What is wrong with this picture? There's another approach. I just chose the name an intellectual approach, Okay. An intellectual approach, or maybe we could even call it apologetics. The intellectual approach is presenting the truth of Jesus Christ in a way that's simply confronting people with a reasoned argument, with logic, with rational thinking, with organized thoughts. It might be in the form of a debate, it might be in the form of a conversation on a street corner or with a neighbor. Forget the neighbor there. But anyway, they just saw in the video. But uh, a a real discussion that's based upon what do you think? Here's what I think. If you turn to Acts chapter 17, and like I said, time won't allow us tonight to, to look at the details of the story, but you may remember that in Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself where? In Athens. In this idolatrous, intellectually based city. In Greece and he finds himself among all these idols and the Bible says he was unsettled in his spirit He wasn't feeling right says something's not right here And then he began to go and find people and the scripture says he reasoned with them And then he got so engaged in reasoning with some people on the street corners that they decided to take him up to Mars Hill where all the philosophers and the political leaders of that day would gather regularly to have discussions. And he went there and presented his case for Jesus Christ being Savior and Lord. It was an intellectual presentation. He was dealing with their minds, but in hopes that the Holy Spirit would so anoint, and he did, anointed. Paul and Athens, to the point that there were some converts, although not great numbers. The result of Acts chapter 2, that was a phenomenal result, it says that over 3,000 came to Christ in that one day. And then it says from that point on, the Lord added to the church regularly those who were coming to Christ. Wow, phenomenal results, right? The intellectual style, to be honest with you, isn't a cup of tea for everyone. It may not be your style. It may be your style, but to use this style, you have to really know your stuff. Someone say amen. You know what I'm saying? You do not want to get in an argument with, uh, with uh, a Mormon if you don't know your stuff because they'll embarrass you quickly for your lack of scriptural knowledge. you got to get your stuff together if you're going to be presenting an intellectual argument. By the way, it's my personal belief that this is a valid way of sharing your faith But it takes the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to make that work, doesn't it? I mean, you can argue, I don't think we can argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. I don't think we argue anybody. I I think the power of this kind of a confrontation, probably uh, not only the confrontational approach, but the intellectual approach, only works with certain people on the receiving end and the giving end. There are only certain Christians that are really effective at doing this, and there's only certain people that, frankly, need the gospel presented this way. But it's still one way of sharing the faith and we see it from the example here of the Athenia model with Paul. The third is what I just called the testimonial model. I love this one. This is the story of the gathering demoniac. You remember it? Remember when Jesus and disciples sailed across the Sea of Galilee? They get to the other side. They battle all the storms. They get to the other side and there's a demoniac, a man possessed by demon spirits and he's living in the graveyard. Screaming, yelling, cutting himself with the rocks. This man was clearly full of demons, so much so that when confronted by the presence of Jesus, the demons called out and said, Leave us alone! Leave us alone! Jesus identified them, and he set the man free, casting out all of those evil spirits, setting that man free. But this is what I want to focus on at the end of it after he was completely delivered. The Bible says that the man said, Jesus, I just want to follow you. Now he's free. He's peaceful. Put clothes on. Now he's just he's just totally transformed. Isn't fun? I mean, all it takes is one touch from Jesus and someone's life can be transformed forever. Amen. I mean, all the oppression that that man must have lived under the bondage. And Jesus set him free. But at the end, he's just just a worshiper of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, oh, I just love you so much. Thank you so much for setting me free. I'm coming with you and your disciples. Jesus, Mm mm-mm. You're not coming. You're not coming with me. Why not? I want to follow you. I need you to stay here in Gadara. What? Yes, I need you to stay here he assigned that man who had just been set free to the power of the authority of Jesus and was a brand new follower of Christ he said I want you to stay here and share with your family and others the scripture specifically says in in this passage here in verses 18 through 20 it says and he went and he shared what had happened to him He shared it with his family, and then he shared it with all those. And it says that the word, the good news of Jesus spread throughout the Decapolis, throughout all of the region, word of this miracle and the testimony of this man. It was the testimony of what? A changed life. His life had changed. Now, I sometimes like to use this story to remind Christians, you don't have to have all the answers. To share your faith. You don't have to have all the answers to be contagious. I frankly think this man simply said, you know, I don't know how to answer your question. Maybe, you know, that one's one we'll we'll wait for Paul in Acts 17 to deal with. But all I know is that once I was blind, and now I'm seeing. Once I was bound, and now I'm free. All I know is that Jesus, I can tell you what I used to be and what I am now. It's the power of a testimony. I don't think there's much more that's more incredibly transformative than when someone simply tells their story. Every one of you have a story to tell if you come to Christ. Maybe it's not just the time that you met Christ, but it's something in your story, in your history, in your life, where God has done something remarkable for you. Do you know how hungry this lost world is to hear a life-changing story? They want something that's real. They want something that's tangible. They want something that works. There's so much phonyism. There's so much veneer. There's so much plastic today in the world. People want to see, hear something that's genuine and real. And you, that is your most powerful story. And the fourth style of sharing your faith is what we'll call the invitational style. And I do want to pause long enough to read this text for you from the Word of God because it's one that I can't camp out on any of these verses, although it's tempting to preach from these. But I am going to read you the story as a reminder. Many of us know it. But this is where Jesus talks and visits with the Samaritan woman. So let me read to you the story. We'll see the result of what Jesus did in her life, beginning in verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that He was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. And so He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, He had to go through Samaria. The reason He went through Samaria is because the Spirit was leading Him through Samaria. And so He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Can anybody think of a more normal occurrence than that? Just stopping for a drink. Stopping by a Starbucks for a cup of coffee. Visiting the local whatever for a meal. Jesus stops to get water from the well around noon. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, the truth of the matter is that that is more of a a dramatic uh, development than sometimes we realize. Because number one, she was a Samaritan, he was a Jew. We're talking about the most distant, most prejudiced, separated groups of that day. For Jesus to have a conversation with the Samaritan woman, even to spend time in Samaria alone, was, was remarkable enough. But now he is conversing with someone that is not to be traditionally culturally, you don't have anything to do with. In addition to that, there's a social barrier that he crossed, because why? She's a woman. Started talking to her. Just said, "Just he's sparking a conversation. Could you help me get a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Holy Spirit made sure was inserted here. John's Gospel. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water now how many of you think the woman stopped and went what and we'll put it in the language of the scripture in verse 11 sir the woman said you don't have anything to draw water with and this well is really deep and where can you get this living You notice how Jesus takes a common, everyday occurrence, development, and turns it into a conversation that has the potential of touching her life forever. Wow. Are you greater than our father Jacob, she asked, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered in verse 13, said, Everyone who drinks this water... Speaking of the natural water, you see she's struggling between the natural and the spiritual, isn't she? Everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever will drink the water that I give them will never ever thirst again. Can you think of a more compelling conversation? Hmm? Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring. They've been pointing to a well. How many of you know there's a difference between a well and a spring? Hmm? How, he said, indeed, the water I give them will literally become a spring of water, welling, springing up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water, this water you're talking about, so that I will not get thirsty and don't have to keep coming here to draw water. This is a practical woman. And he said, look here, this is a, another pivot in the conversation. He said, "Go, call your husband and come back, see me. Have you believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit fully operated through Jesus' life? Do you believe that? Here's a word of knowledge. Go call your husband, and come back." Verse 17, "I have no husband." Of course, Jesus knew that, didn't he? Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man that now you have is not your husband what you have just said is quite true sir the woman said I can see that you're a prophet our ancestors, she gets spiritual with them. She gets real religious. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place that where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that people always try to distract the argument from the main point that you're trying to bring? Have you ever noticed that when you're sharing your faith? When you're trying to be contagious, someone wants to bring up all kinds of cultural issues and separation issues and prejudices. And Jesus says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when, You will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I. The one speaking to you, I am he. And I'm going to skip this part because the disciples come along and they get into this conversation. I want to get down to to, uh, the results in verse. Where did it go? Yes, and beginning in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's, what? Testimony. I want to read that again. Many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. Quote, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Wow. That is the invitational approach. Jesus was inviting her to drink living water. He was inviting her to a new experience. I want to shift to talk about some specific statistics that may be surprising to you about Christians and the unchurched. Did you know that 82% of the unchurched This is all based on very valid research. 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend a church if invited. Invitations. Did you know that only 2% of church members invite an unchurched person to church? 2% of church members are inviting people. That means that 98% of church-going people, doesn't mean they're necessarily a Christian, but they're church-goers, never extend an invitation to anyone to attend church in a given year. There was a study done of more than 15,000 adults that revealed that about two-thirds of them are willing to receive information about a local church from a family member and 56% from friends or neighbors. The message is clear that what? Unchurched people are more open to receiving information and engaging in conversations about God and even about your church than maybe you have realized. The survey that I spoke of shows that many would respond to an invitation from a friend or acquaintance, 41%, from their own family members, they would respond to them uh, 25%. A few other important statistics that basically show that more people would attend a church as a, you know, as a as a visitor if simply. Invited. Studies have shown that most people come to a church because of a personal invitation. Seven out of ten unchurched people have never been invited to a church in their entire life. I want to repeat that before you look at this chart. Seven out of ten, that's 70% of unchurched people have never been invited to a church in their whole life. So what have we discovered? We've discovered that people, a large percentage of people are not being invited to a church, must less have a conversation about God. And we found that a much larger percentage than what most people think are willing to respond if they simply engage in a discussion or an invitation. You can see from this chart The effectiveness of an invitation, a personal invitation, from a friend or a neighbor from a church. You notice that well over half say it's somewhat or very effective. If they have a personal invitation from who? Neighbor or friend. Okay, Notice we're not talking about a stranger, although there's nothing wrong with that. But just notice that over half say that they would be open to having an invitation to a church from a friend or a neighbor. Now, notice how it changes with a family member. 67%. If you receive an invitation from a family member, it's even more effective. What about information? How many times have I encouraged you, pick up flyers, just tell someone about the church? Even if you feel too insecure or you don't feel like you know enough to present the gospel in its full form, or if you feel freaked out that someone might engage in a discussion of apologetics, fine, I, I prefer you to be fully trained to share the gospel and to win people on the spot. That's preferential. But even if you're not, or even if you do, look at the power of giving information. Now, I have to be honest with you, I think the information needs to be well crafted and it needs to have a good appearance. I've seen plenty of information about churches that would make me not want to go. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How about willingness to receive information through a personal conversation with a friend or a neighbor from the church? Very willing, somewhat willing, 56%. That's the statistic I gave you earlier. What about a willingness to receive information through a personal conversation from a family member? Again, over 50%. What's my point? My point is simply this. Perhaps one of the most underestimated reasons that people actually return to a church, those who have already been churched, and they have been unchurched or de-churched for whatever reason, Did you know one of the primary reasons that they ever come back to the Lord? Or come back to church? Invitations. It is shocking to see how many people, how many Christians, will never ever share the love of Jesus through a gospel presentation in their entire Christian experience. Shocking, convicting. And yet we see that studies repeatedly show that vast percentages of people are more open to hearing about God. Statistics show they're not only willing to hear about God, learn how to improve their relationship with God, and are even willing to attend a church, a Christian church, if invited by someone that they know. What's my point? My point is that I think we need to be more prepared to use some of these methods. Now, as we get established in our new location, all the more important because of the consistency where we'll be, all the more important for us to be those that are radically committed to sharing the love of God, releasing the power of God, sharing the life changing message of Jesus Christ, and inviting people to church. One commitment that I will make you. If you bring someone to church. They're a first timer to church. I promise that as a church family. We will present. The love of God to them. In a. Non-threatening. I didn't say non-convicting. A non-threatening. Manner. And we'll give them a chance. To receive ministry. So. What I'd love to see is for us to all be more committed spokespeople ambassadors for christ in our personal lives